one thing that's sort of controversial right now is the whole idea of like, oh, you only got it because you're black, mm -hmm. you only got it because you're a woman. As someone who got a job at RBC through the diversity program, how do you feel about when people make comments right now? Well, I tell them that I turned down uh, two interviews at Goldman Sachs LA and Moles and Company LA. Our guest for today is the fantastic Paul Okundai. I don't know about that, but I'm here anyways. <laughs> so Paul is an incoming management consultant at Bain, and before that he was an investment banking summer analyst at Scotiabank, RBC. Yeah. Investment banking summer yeah. analyst at RBC. You want to start again? No, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. We'll okay. Do a lot, and then um, yeah. a friend that just put it all over again. Yeah. And, and he was also the founder of a company called Dineasy, a food delivery startup in London. So we have a lot of top stuff to talk about today. Paul, thanks for joining us. Yeah, no, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for taking time. So the first question I've always liked to start off with is, Paul at 16, what were you like when you were 16? Wow. <laughs> so when I was 16, that would have been uh, grade 10? No, grade, grade, grade 10 or 11, either way. So that was just about when I actually like decided to get involved and start building my leader character, if I put it that way. So a little backstory, I grew up in Lagos, Nigeria and lived there until I was 13 and I moved uh, to Canada in grade eight. So I started second semester of grade eight and then went to high school. And then in grade nine, a teacher, like kind of like, I was, I was a bit more assertive, like I'm a pretty outgoing person. And so one teacher just pulled me aside in the hallway and one day she said, man, you, you seem to like be active and blah, blah, blah. How about you come join the athletic council? So I joined the athletic council and then from there, we had this uh, something called this something called the Ontario Educational Leadership Center OELC. So it's like a really good leadership camp, and I was fortunate enough to be selected going at grade nine. And then after I went to that, that was what really sparked it for me because I got to see other. Because up to that point, I was still a kid like in grade grade school having fun, but that was the first time I saw other like-minded people like me at that leadership camp that like to have fun but also were aiming to do something. And I started to see how other people were already in student council, this person was starting this club, this person was doing that. And I was like, wow, I want to do that. And so at 16, that was when I decided, I actually, like, actually sat down and I made three goals for myself of like what I wanted to do before I graduated high school to like give myself that launch back. What were, those, what were those three goals? So, it's, so I'll be, I'll be candid because I'm a pretty open book, but like some of you will laugh at this. But uh, growing up, I was a pretty fat kid. I was like very overweight. So my three goals were to, number one, get into all of my top choices of university in grade 12. So like that makes you like finish with a very high grade. And number two was to like start going to the gym and like lose weight and like just get really a healthy lifestyle. And number three, this one you probably roast me for, was to get better at talking to girls. <laughs> I actually wrote, I'm telling you, I wrote those three things and I made a poster. Yeah. So actually you know what I did was I printed out a poster to represent one of those each three things okay. and I put those on my wall. So I had a picture of like Arnold Schwarzenegger on my wall to like get fit in, picture of the schools I wanted to go to, and then a picture, I don't remember who it was, but someone was like, well, that guy's good at talking to girls, like a celebrity. And I was like, every day before I left the door, I would look at it and be like, okay, how can the decisions I make today? Because it's all about goal setting is like, it, it's, it's not continuous, right? It's a set of discrete decisions that you make that cascade towards the goal you want to do, right? So all the little things and decisions you make day to day are what will, end up resulting in the goal that you want. So every day when I left the door, I would look at those posts and say, how are the little decisions that I'm making today, how will they 
and kept me to where I want to go. And that's where I was at at 16. I like that. <laughs> so then you mentioned, um, so how, when you graduated high school, how did those people, how, how did you do? How did you do? I, I, I graduated uh, with a 95 average and a class valedictorian, and mm -hmm. I got into all the schools I wanted to. Talking to girls. Uh, talking to girls, yeah, pretty good. Like, I, I got my first girlfriend in grade 12. I was dated one of the, like, like I would say, like, she was, uh, like, she was, she was, like, very, very attractive, but yeah, it was a good time. That's awesome. Yeah. So then you said that, so you said, what were the top two choices we had for schools? So that's something actually that was pretty interesting was that, again, with goal setting, right? Nothing's ever set in stone that kind of changes as you move on and develop. So in grade 11, I actually initially thought I wanted to be a computer scientist. That's actually what I was thought I was going to be a programmer. And I learned all of like basic CSS, C, JavaScript, Java, HTML5, et cetera, et cetera. And then what happened was, right into a roadblock in grade 11. I took chemistry and physics and I got an 84 in chemistry and a 76 in physics and like that was the first B I ever got in like ever and that it just scared me off because I'm like I need scholarships for school right because I just moved here I had to support myself through school so I knew I couldn't put those low grades on my transcript so fact, uh, computer science was in the faculty of science so I needed those classes so before I thought I was going to go to McGill and all these schools in like Waterloo and U of T those are my top choices then I decided to scrap that and I looked to my peers who were just a year or two above me in the leadership like circle, they would say the things I was involved in and a lot of them seemed to be going into business. And so that's when I decided, I mean, so I, I ended up applying for Queens, Ivy, uh, U of T, Waterloo and Mac. Fortunate enough to get into all of them. That's awesome. So you're in grade 12, applied to Queens, Western, U of T, Waterloo. Yeah, Mac, yeah. And then so, which of the schools did you get accepted to? And then which one did you pick and why? Yeah. So I got accepted to all five. And then, nice. uh, <laughs> thanks. And honestly, the choice really was between Queens and Ivy, right? Those were my two. The other three were just like, yeah, everyone gets nervous, and like, including me. And I was like, oh, what if, what if, what if, what if? Like, even though I kind of knew I would get in. And uh, so here's essentially what I did was I had friends that were in first year at both schools. So at the time, right, both Queens of uh, Commerce and Ivy were pretty much like even in terms of prestige, right, of like opportunity. So I decided like it was more about my experience there. So I didn't want to get any bullshit campus tour of what anyone else said. The best way to figure it out is for yourself. So what I did was I reached out to two friends in first year at Western and Queens, and I went and I spent a weekend with them on rest. So I lived in rest on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, went to rest parties, went to a volleyball game, went to both gyms and both schools to actually see like, what would my student life, my experience be like at these schools? And then I went to Queens first, two weeks after I went to Western, and after I came back from Western, I signed the next Monday. Because I knew that like that was where like the culture and the opportunities and the diversity diversity at Western was way, at least relatively to Queens was like better. Like at Queens, you could lose a piece of sliced bread and electric hot. <laughs> wow. Okay. So then, so you said that coming into high school, coming to university, you knew you wanted to go into banking. Yeah. Well, I knew I wanted to go into business. Business. Okay. Yeah. So then, at what point did you realize? Okay, like I want to go into banking specifically. Yeah. So. Uh, when I came in from first year, right, I kind of done a lot of preliminary research and I knew I was interested in pretty much either finance or consulting. Those are the two, and it's kind of crazy that I ended up in consulting, but at the first go of things, right, the thing is like, and here's like a bit, little bit of cyber advice to everyone that's younger, right, is that like, you don't know jack shit about what you want, so stay open-minded, right, because ask yourself like, 
what you wanted five years ago when you're 16, is this still the same thing? Mine is it, right, other than this story. But in first year, I reached out to my friend Justin, who was like really involved in the financing, Justin Young, appreciate him. Yeah, we were OELC camp I was just talking about, that's how I met him. We were camp counselors together at that leadership camp. So these are the people I met, Greg Justin, for example, that's why I wanted to go into business, right? So I spoke to him and he recommended I check out some business uh, finance and consulting clubs on campus. So Western Investment Club and Western Capital Markets and a bit, uh, finance clubs and then PBSM for consulting. And then at the time, I just seem to be more interested in finance. And Ivy Western is a very big finance school and you just get to tend you tend to get swept into this rat race, right? Because you feel like everyone's going to bank it. All these kids are getting sick jobs at Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, blah, blah, blah. I'm seeing like they're making like crazy money. And so grass is always greeted from the other side. And I thought, okay, finance is what I wanted to do. So I started getting more involved with uh, Western Capital Markets. And I was fortunate enough to get an executive position on the club in first year. And that's really what kicked it off for me. And then so, you know, in the first year. And then so, Banking is like probably one of the most competitive industries to get into, and you're able to get an investment banking position in Scotiabank. Well, uh, uh, yeah, I, that was the, my first banking position was in second year summer. Uh, well, first year summer, mm -hmm. I worked in wealth management at Scotiabank, mm -hmm. and then in second year summer, I worked at a boutique investment bank uh, called Kirchner Private Capital. Then in third year summer, I worked like my first like major investment bank at RBC. So like, it's, again, it's one of the most competitive industries. The fact that you got these internships in like first and second year. It's pretty impressive. How did you do that? Yeah, I mean, the same like it's the same spiel I give to everyone. Number one key thing is to get involved. Doesn't matter what it is, right? That's the very baseline is you need to be involved in something. But then if you want to take it a step further to say, okay, you want to be competitive in these jobs, right? You can usually always boil it down into a composite of like four things. And obviously, getting a third-year job, right? Like, like, like I think let me put it down this way. In first year, it's extremely difficult, right? Like, if you just get a job like that's not working at McDonald's, that's fine. That's what you need for the summer. For me, I there was this uh, still so the pre-business students network at Western. They have this uh, interview competition, right? Where it's essentially an interview competition. You go through a couple rounds, and the winners get to interview with Scotiabank for a position. So there were two winners, me and Victor Law, that year, and then we both interviewed and got the job. So that was how I got it. First year, I would say don't stress it at all, like. The most important thing is just don't waste your summer, don't work at McDonald's, but do something. Second year summer, key is to get something business related remotely. So this is time where like, your first year summer, don't stress it, but you need to lay the foundation of how you're gonna get that second year summer. And this is what you need to get that. So number one is great, right? And again, it's gonna depend on what program you're in. I'm gonna be very candid, an 85 in BMOS is not the same as an 85 in Medsum, right? So. You need to know relative to what program you're in, what a good grade constitutes. And secondly would be extracurricular experience. You need to be involved in two things. Well, again, right, this is not, a, I want to caveat, this is not a be all end all. It's not, this is the only way to do it, but this is a good way to get, increase your odds, right? So you want to be in two extracurriculars, one business focused and one non-business focused. And make sure you have some sort of executive or leadership focus in there. Right, so you're in some sort of business club or you're in a VP finance for a different club, right? That's a business related one. And then another one should be something that you're interested in, you're passionate in. It's a sport you play, it's a cultural club you're on, you coach kids on the weekend, whatever it is, that's very important. And then the third thing, 
is your job experience, right? So like I said, in second year, this isn't as important because your first year job experience, like no one cares that much. But if you're looking for a third year job, then your second year experience is very important. And if you're looking for a fourth year full-time job, your third year experience is even more important, right? So as you get older, the experience gets more and more important. And then the last piece of the puzzle is networking. So networking, right? That's kind of like, and there's no really like easy way to put this, but you need to just build a good network. And if that's nepotism, your uncle is like, but like use that to your advantage. At the end of the day, life is not fair, right? You play the best hand with the poker hands you're dealt. That's it, right? So if you don't have an uncle, you make an uncle. And you spend the next three years making those connections in the ground up. Like my job at Bain that I got, the person who put me in contact with, how I got connected with her, Tayo, was through the Black Students Association. Mm -hmm. Although she's at Ivy and everything, but that was my first point of contact with her. And I'd already known her for a year before that opportunity came. Right? You get to be in a second. Yeah. Right yeah. Um, so let's fast forward now to when, so you've done your, you were in BMOS the first years? Yes. First years of BMOS, you're now in HPA1. Then how did the RBC opportunity come about? Yeah, so this was uh, actually pretty crazy. So. I actually signed at RBC before I started at Ivy. So our, our RBC Capital Markets, they have a diversity scholarship. Again, like for me, I'm putting myself through school. So, and this is like sidebar advice that I give to everyone is I keep a bookmark tab on my computer that I call scholarships and opportunities. And every few weeks, I make it a habit. I spend a few hours every weekend just to search opportunities. But Attila is already there, so he's already done the work for you. But this is something that I actively did. Was every two to three weeks, I would like spend hours to say where are scholarships and opportunities that I can do. Again, Attila is a great resource, but make sure you're also putting in your own time as well to figure out like what you can get from there. So through that, I found out the RBC Diversity Scholarship. I applied for it, interviewed over the summer, and then I was fortunate enough to sign in July. And then I started Ivy uh, that September, went the whole year. But it was a pretty crazy year because I also started dying easy at the same time, so there's a lot to jump. So, a question, so you mentioned the diversity scholarship. One thing that's sort of controversial right now is the whole idea of like, oh, you only got it because you're black, mm -hmm. you only got it because you're a woman. As someone who got a job at RBC through the diversity program, how do you feel about when people make comments right now? Well, I tell them that I turned down uh, two interviews at Goldman Sachs LA and Molus and Company LA. I had the interviews, I had Molus and Company in New York. I knew I didn't want to work there. And I will not, no, no, let me put it this way. I knew, number one, that for me, I, I just don't like the United States. I couldn't see myself living there like long term, right? So initially, when I was looking at these banking jobs and I networked with Goldman and Molus, my thought process was, okay, it's pretty stupid, but I was like, I'm gonna get a job in LA so I can do the LA flex for the summer and then come back to Toronto full time, yeah. right? And I was like, if I wanna come back to Toronto full time, where's the best bank in Canada work? RBC. Yeah. So at the time, right, my, so my Goldman and Molas interviews were set for August, right? And I signed RBC in July. So I just figured I'd apply and get it, but then when I ended up getting the job, I thought about it as like, how stupid would I be if, I turned down RBC now just to go flex in LA for the summer, just to try and come back to RBC again next year. Yeah. So, I mean, there is like the, with the whole diversity thing and people say affirmative action, you get the job because you're this, get the job because you're that. Well, how many other opportunities did I not get because I'm black? Or did I not get because someone saw my name and said, that looks like a complicated last name, you're going in the no pipe in the resume, right? I'm not saying that like it's a perfect system, but it's the reality of the situation. Like I said earlier, life is not fair. 
we all get dealt the poker hands that we get dealt with. Some of us have to use our uncles because we have those uncles. People like me that don't have those uncles, this is our way. All right, so now, so you do your, um, so you do your formative banking, and then you decide to, so then, how do, how, how do you find the best bank? Because I know it has a really sort of reputation of like, grind, long hours, but the money's good. How yeah, do you find it's, it's definitely like, that's the best way to put it. Like, it's the golden handcuffs, right? It's like, they chain you down, like, but the money's good. But for me, again, I really want to caveat something that RBC itself as a place to work was fantastic. Right, the people there were really great, and I enjoyed RBC itself. But banking was what just fortunately like didn't really gel with me. So my experience at RBC to break it down a little bit, I worked as a, in a generalist program. So what that means is worked through the whole bank. So I worked in M and A, ECM, DCM, consumer, tech, like you name it, like pretty much like in varying capacities, obviously. And some like I did it, I did like two IPOs, I did like one live deal, and some, and others I literally just made PowerPoints yeah. or I made photocopies, right? So you help out whenever you're needed, but. The experience as a whole, the learning curve in banking is fantastic. That's something that like, it gave me, I remember there was this big project I worked on for two weeks. We had a client who had, uh, so this was like my probably my biggest project for the summer. So this client, uh, they had $150 million opened up in a credit facility, right? So they only had this capital and there was a bit of back and forth between the CFO and the board of directors of how they should deploy this. The CFO, and intuitively what you would expect is that they should do an acquisition, right, buy a company. But the board of directors was like, oh, let's return the capital to shareholders, do a share buyback, or do like something similar like that, or like repurchasing. And it just, that didn't make sense, but again, it was getting a lot of pushback. So the CFO came to RBC and said, okay, let's have the RBC guys run the numbers. And so for two weeks, I was actually the one that was tasked with building the financial model. So it was a statistical valuation model. I'm not gonna go into the weeds of it, right? But like I grinded for two weeks. I remember the day, so it was the model was supposed to be due on Thursday. That was a call with the CFO. CFO emails on Monday. Please change your plans, we need this tomorrow. So I had to come into the office on that Tuesday, uh, that Monday, I came in 7.30, and then I didn't leave till 2 a.m. Right, so I was at the office for almost 18 hours, like it was the longest day I had. I was the only one there by the time I left grinding. Everyone else was at home, like talking via email, right? Like I went back, I went home, came back to office like at like eight, right? And then I was like super dead, but we had that phone call with the CFO. Obviously I didn't see anything, but I was in the room and my boss like presented like all my findings to the CFO and the CFO was like, wow, this is great. And like what we initially had sent him was, a PDF, so a PDF copy of everything, and then he actually asked us for the native Excel files because he ended up using that in his meeting to the board of directors. And I remember going home that day, like I was exhausted, but I laid down and I was like, wow, I'm 20 years old, but I just had a significant say in where $150 million just got spent. Yeah. And that was what banking, that's what banking does. It's like banking is very hard, but you can make a real impact. And it can really instill that. That, that was the first time I was like, that imposter syndrome left where I was like, you know what, I do deserve to be here. I actually just did something, right? So banking was great for giving me that confidence, but at the same time, you gotta take the good with the bad, right? And the bad just outweighed the good for me, right? The hours are like long and grueling. A lot, there's a lot of idle time where you're just, especially at the lower level, right? You have to eat a lot of shit because what your, what your work is, is dependent on everyone else's work. So there's a lot of idle time of waiting because someone else hasn't sent you something. And I remember one time I waited in the office for five hours doing nothing until my work came at 
at like eight. And then because of that, I had to stay till one. Yeah. But from three to eight, I did nothing. Yeah. Right? But because I had to wait for someone else to do their work. So a lot of these things like happen and banking is also really a good old boys club. Again, so for me, like, and this is something about like not RBC problem, but banking problem was that being black and being a minority in a good old boys club, there were a lot of times that, or most of the time this summer, I felt that I had to check a certain part of my identity at the door. Because banking is very conformist, right? It's a meritocracy. If you keep your head down, you only wear blue and black suits, no colored shirts, you do your job. You only stand out on the merit of your work. Everything else you leave beside you, right? And you're supposed to be conformist. But then when you realize that if you're conformist in a job or a system that's mostly a stereotypical type A white males, then that means that I have to conform to a stereotypical type A white male. And I had to leave a portion of my identity at the door every day. I had to talk about like whatever like they were talking about and I felt like I couldn't express those parts of myself. And that was a very like one of the things that like pushed me away and why I moved to consulting and we're not even consulting specifically Bay was because of that. So that's a perfect segue. How did we come about? Yeah, so going into the summer, like I said, I knew uh, banking was what I was targeting. And again, I was actually only doing banking initially because I wanted to get into private equity. My thought process through our first year, third year, if you've ever asked me was, I'm going to do two years banking, break in private equity. That was like the formula everyone follows, right? And so RBC banking for that summer was a litmus test, right? I said, okay, if I do bank, I know number one, I want to go to the United States. I want to stay in Canada. Where's the best place to do banking in Canada? RBC. So if I don't like RBC, if I don't like banking at RBC, then I'm not gonna like banking anywhere. Because yeah. RBC is notoriously known for having like the best culture on Bay Street and the best hours. So my hours like were bad, but not as bad as my colleagues that were working at the other Canadian banks, right? So going in, in about March, I decided that just in case I didn't like it, I didn't want to put all my eggs in one basket. So I started networking. And that's how I spoke to Tayo, who was a Tayo was a HVA like HVA last year, who's working in Bain now. And Bain is like a really good company for diversity. So they have what they call employee resource groups. So they have Blacks at Bain, Latinos at Bain, Pride at Bain, etc. And so there was a networking event with Blacks and Latinos at Bain, and he asked her to invite some high-performing like black people from Ivy to come. And then I went to that info session in March, and that was my first point of contact with the company. And that was the very first time I remember thinking that this is the first time I've left a networking session and I'm not exhausted, I'm not drained, because I'm not putting on this facade. Because in banking, there's, it's always that facade, right? And I was like, I felt like this is the first time I was just myself. And I came out of it feeling refreshed, right? It was very different for me. And so I kept that in the back of my mind as I was going through the whole summer. And, and then I started my job at RBC in uh, first week of May, and it went up till August. And Going to the very beginning of summer, I was like still enjoying banking, like doing it, but I didn't want to keep my eggs in my basket. So I reached out to people at Bain for coffees because another key thing with Bain was uh, I personally knew around six or seven people at the office. Either like one person I'd known since high school who was a summer there, two I'd known since first year, two I'd known since second year. So I reached out to all these people that like talk about because one of, one of them, for example, like a guy named TJ at Bain, like he was one of my mentors like when he was at Ivy two years ago because he used to be a big banking guy. So he was one of the WIC head analysts and everything. But then he worked at Omer's, right, private equity in third year summer, but he switched to Bain full time. 
So that conversation I had with him, I was like, you are the exact same path I'm in. Because I remember the very first, the WIC researcher meetings I used to go to in first year yeah. were for the FIG group, like financial institutions group. And he's the one they used to present. So TJ was one of the reasons why I started going to banking. And then he switched to Bain. And so he broke down everything for me about why he switched to Bain and everything. And that along with my like high school friend from grade 12. So we were in the park, I'm telling you, like this is like true story how it's happened. So we're in the park playing spike ball. You know, spike ball, like we're chilling, like like just having a good time. And I'm like, yo, like man, how are things in Bane going, man? And he starts telling me about his like what he's working on. I'm like, man, that's sick. I'm like, yo, like how crazy would it be like if we like work together because we could live together. Because I was trying to think about who I was going to live with after school, everything, right? And we're like, yo, that would it, that'd be crazy. I'd be technically live together and work and everything. And so I started like seriously considering it. And then at the beginning of July, they had what's called like your accelerated recruiting event. So they invited like everyone from undergrad, postgrad, like industry. So everyone of like, this is what the accelerated, like this is the recruiting timeline to come on. They're like, interviews are going to be starting August 13th apply online. And I remember at that networking event, I talked to the head of HR there and she was one of the, like, that was the final straw. I was like, okay, if she, cause she was pumping everyone with drinks. <laughs> like that's the kind of person she is. Like she's the life of the room. And I was just like, man, like this is where I want to work. And so at that time, in May, at the beginning of July, there was a month left at RBC. And that's when I decided, screw it. I'm going to leave banking and I'm either going to, so I'm going to go into consulting or PE or whatever, but I knew I didn't want to do banking anymore. But Bain was kind of like my first choice. So again, right, I'm not putting all the eggs in one basket. I couldn't only do Bain. So I thought about it and I was like, okay, if Bain's application process is online, right now accelerated, McKinsey and BCG will definitely be right now too, because all three of them always move together, right? MBB, they have like, like joint like recruiting timelines. But I didn't talk to anyone at BCG or McKinsey, but I'm like, you know what? I'm just gonna apply online, put my resume in, see what happens. And then on the private equity side, because that was the whole reason I was doing banking, I started talking to people at CPPID and like trying to like manage those relationships. And then fast forward to my last week of work. So this is like where everything went down. And this is without a doubt, the craziest week of my entire life. So <laughs> it's August 5th, right? And my internship ends on August 10th at RBC. So August 5th on the Monday, I get a, what you call it, a phone call from the Bain person, right? And they're like, okay, interviews are starting uh, on the 13th next Monday. But they knew that like at RBC, if I got a return offer, I would find out at the end of the week. And it, they do what's called an exploding offer. So you would only have 48 hours to sign it. So if I got the offer Friday, I'd have to sign it before Monday, right? So I, so I told them that I needed to interview this week because I don't want my hands to be forced if I get the offer. I was like, I don't know if I'll get the offer, but I don't want my hands to be forced. So because of the long relationship I had with Bain, I've been networking since March. I had almost six, seven coffees. And this is what I mean about networking, you make those relationships. So what they did was they actually bypassed my first round. So I didn't do a first round interview with Bain and they put my final round interview for Friday. Tuesday comes along, I get an email from BCG recruiter. Hey, we got your like application online. We want you to interview. Interview start on Monday. Same with Bain, right? I'm like, hey, this is what's happening with Bain already. Can you bypass my interview and do it this week? They're like, we don't know you. We're not gonna bypass your first round. Yeah. But how about you come in and do a first round interview tomorrow? So I go and I've been so from that time in July when I decided I was gonna leave, I've been prepping, right? And I've been like, 
I'll be very honest, I've been neglecting my duties at work at RBC because I decided I was going to leave. Like, I mean, I did what was asked of me, but that was it. I never went the extra mile. At the end of the day, I stopped going around to see who needed help. I stopped following up with work because I knew I had to leave the office early to go do mock interviews, right? I had to like prep all this stuff for consulting. So I was ready by that week because I knew I'd be interviewing. So on the same Tuesday, get an email from the CPPIB recruiter. Because I've been like working that angle as well. They're like, our interview started next Wednesday. I'm like, well, BCG and like Bay, this is what's happening. Can you bypass? They're like, no, it's final. It's Wednesday. You take it or leave it. So I kept that as my backup, right? So Wednesday, I go, I do the BCG interview, and it's like uh, two interviews, like hour each, whatever. They call me later that night. They're like, you got it. But tomorrow, Thursday, everyone is busy, so no one can interview you. And they said Friday is their quarterly conference at the Global Mail Center. So they're like, what they do was they're gonna book out a room for me at the Global Mail Center and have two of the partners step out to interview me during the like, quarterly conference, right? And so that was scheduled for four o'clock on Friday, and my Bain final was scheduled for 11 a.m. on Friday, wow. right? And the Bain final was a three-hour final, so 11 to two, and then I had two hours of rest before the BCG final at four. Thursday, right? RBC, everyone finds out the returns. So at 7 o'clock, 7 p.m. on Thursday, I find out I didn't get the RBC return. Honestly, I wasn't surprised. Like, like, like my, like, the, our staffer, what he pretty much told me, he said, like, when he went around the office, every, the consensus was that everyone said my work was stellar from the first half of the, of the, like, summer. But in his words verbatim, it feels like I had checked out. Wow. I, I was like, what? Me? Checked out? I've been giving it way back my life. Surprised because, like, even if I got the return, I already decided that, like, it's do or die, yeah. right? But then it really that night when I went home, it really dawned on me the task that I had ahead of me. Because if you think about it, I just worked this whole summer at RBC and I didn't get the return. So if I didn't get a job before full time recruiting, I'm damaged goods. Because if I start recruiting in the fall, the first question in every interview, why didn't you return to RBC? Oh, I didn't get a return because I wasn't good enough. I, I would be screwed. So I knew that I had to land one of these three interviews. So that day I went to bed very early, relaxed myself, got in Zen mode, woke up Friday morning, and everyone at the office, like all the summers, we went around to say our goodbyes in the morning because they knew I had my interview, but also we knew some of the partners, it's Friday, it's summertime, so they leave for the long weekend. So I think it's better for doing in the morning saying our goodbyes. So after that, I left the office. I was like, like I'm not getting, what's, why am I gonna stay here? So I went, I did my Bane final at 11 a.m. It was a three 45 minute interviews, two, uh, two like case, one behavioral with like partners and manager and went up till 2, 2 p.m. So I had a final interview at two with a partner. Sorry, finished at two. And so I'm leaving, like he's walking me out and he said, okay, so what else do you got going on? Like, like, and like what is going on for today? And I said, well, actually, I'm about to go do my BCG final in two hours, I'm just gonna grab lunch. And he's like, good luck, but not too much luck. And I shook his hand and I told him, I don't want luck there, I want luck here, because this yeah, is where yeah, I want to yeah, work, like right? And I was like, this is where I want to work, I don't want luck there, I want luck here, right? I've talked to everyone since March, like, it was, it, they knew I wanted to work there. So I went to go get food, I was eating at this Jamaican place, 10 minutes after, I get a phone call and the partner like, gave me the job, right? Like 10 minutes after the interview. So I finished eating, I went back to bank, because I was just downstairs at Bloor Young. I was just eating at like, a Jamaican place around there. I went back up the stairs, and all the summers, because I, I messaged my friend who was summer in there, right? When I was talking about the park, right? And I told him, I was like, shit, I just got the job, right? And so when I came back up the elevator, all the summers were waiting in the lobby for me, right? And then the HR lady who I was talking about, She's there holding a Bane tote bag and she gives it to me. 
and in the tote bag is a bottle of champagne to offer oh my room my So I signed in the lobby, and then that night, so all the summers, the day before, they all just got their returns. So I signed, and then me and my friend, that night, we went out, we popped the bottles, and then Did you go to So, oh yeah, so sorry, sorry, so because of like the courtesy that they were doing for me, I mean, they were really gonna make like concessions for me to like, take out time during your quarterly conference and book out a room to interview me. So I knew Bane was my number one. And so I sent her an email like before an hour before and I was like, hey, I just interviewed a Bane and he gave me the job on the spot and I took it. And I, I knew like you guys are going out on a limb for me and I didn't want to waste your time out of respect, right? Because that's what, like the industry is small. Yeah. And that's so disrespectful. They're making this concession for me and for me to waste their time knowing I'm not going to take the job. Like what's the point in doing that? Mm -hmm. These are people you might meet later on in life yeah. and you never know, right? Yeah. So I sent her that email and she was like, Bane's a fantastic place, happy for you. Don't worry about it. Said the same thing to CPP. And then the next Monday, I ended up getting an email from McKenzie because I applied online too. Told them the same thing because even if I got McKenzie, Bane was where I knew I wanted to work. Yeah. And then that Friday, went out and we celebrated. Yeah. That's a very so that week was crazy, without a doubt. But that's how I ended up here. That's good, I like that story. But now I have to ask you though, so you've done banking, you've done consulting. Which well, like, we'll do consulting. Well, you will be going into consulting. Yeah. Which is like the most stereotypical, cliche, business school kind of job. Yeah. So my question now is like, how much of you going to consulting and banking is like, you know, just like doing what everyone else is doing and like doing what all the other smart people are doing it and sort of like doing it for clout? Mm -hmm. Which is like giving you genuine passion something you enjoy doing. 100% like, and that's a like, that's a tier totter that you have to be real with yourself, right? With banking, again, like I said, right? I, I, I realize now, like hindsight's 2020, that a lot of me going into banking was number one, I love math, I love problem solving, analytical. I actually like enjoyed that part of banking, building the models, but I realized that on the whole, I was mostly going into banking because it was the most prestigious job, right? Like, you, like and there's this thing that people started to discuss now is, prestige chasing just for the like sake of it. Mm -hmm. In that like, oh, I'm gonna do banking because it's the quote unquote top job, right? For someone coming out of business school. And that was part of the reason why. You can make the same argument for consulting as well. But I genuinely think that I'm a lot happier with my choice. For me specifically, again, right, this is something that's person dependent. I have a lot of friends who are going into banking who absolutely love it. One of my like coworkers at RBC this summer, we used to call him the banking robot. Cause this guy's literally, he's in that program at McGill that only accepts like 20 people, like portfolio management program and like they're all insane. So this guy, he loves it, right? Like every day, like he comes to work, like he will ask to stay as late as possible, right? So if that's you, then screw what I'm saying, screw what everyone else is saying, do it, right? But you need to be real with yourself. And I realized that that wasn't me, right? There is, diminishing marginal returns on the nth dollar when you get to a certain point. Where I compared, but I actually did the math, obviously before I switched to consulting, I looked at my paycheck from RBC and the hours I was working at RBC, and I looked at my paycheck from Bain and the hours I would be working at Bain, and it was proportional. Like at RBC, I would probably, like full time, I would be working around 90 hours. And they are working around 60, 70, yeah. and the pay was ended up just being proportional. Like that's entry level salary, though. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Banking long term, it's long. Exactly. Well, like, but that, my point though is like the grind part is at the entry level, right? Once you've done your two years in banking, it gets easier, yeah. right? But it's like you're selling your soul for two years. Don't don't fool yourself. It's a tax. Everyone, but you have to accept that. Do I like it enough that I'm willing to pay that tax? Yeah. And that was something I was real with myself, and I was like, I would rather have my weekends off 
right, and take less money and leave the office every day at 7 or 8 instead of leaving the office at 11, 12, 1 a.m. So like on the, pay. on the consulting part though, right, like we both have a lot of friends that they sort of want to go into consulting MBB. Not so much because they enjoy doing it, but because all their friends Because then it's the same problem. Yeah. So like for you, how would you say like how much like do you know like how much have you wanted to go to consulting? It's like, okay, it has a lot of clout, it's gonna look on my LinkedIn versus like consulting what I actually want to do. Yeah. I mean don't fool yourself again, there's always a base level of like, I need to progress, I wanna go to business school or sorry, not about that. I wanna like be successful and like know that a brand name like MBB on your resume helps. But at the same time, the key part and the distinction for me of why I knew consulting was right was the interview prep process, right? So preparing for banking compared to preparing for consulting, I actually enjoyed it and that was the key part for me. Because in banking, right, I, I needed to learn what are all the different, how do I build a DCF, how do I do this? And banking is just like recall, right? There's, it's deterministic, it's one plus one equals two, right? There's always a right answer. But consulting by definition is you need to be a jack of all trades. So how I prepped myself was every day when I was walking, because I, I lived downtown when I was working for the summer, so when I would walk home from work, I would try to like, I'd see a random business and then I would try and analyze it from the outside. And be like, okay, based on there, this is how many people are in there right now, it's seven o'clock, I look at this neighborhood, this is the traffic flow, is this a good or bad business and like, what's going on there? So I'd literally be like, and now I can't turn my brain off like that, like I'm just like, but I found that like, I really like that process or even doing case interviews, right? Like I would do a practice interview with someone, they'd give me a business case. I would use my problem solving to figure out is this the right option for them. I would make mistakes but learn from them. So that process was how I knew I actually liked consulting. Because if I was just doing it for the clout chase, right, then and I didn't like it, I would have done it anyways, right? Yeah. I would have just done it and be like, oh, this, is, this sucks, this prep sucks, but I gotta do it for the prestige. That's how banking was. And that's how I realized was that I didn't enjoy the prep of banking. I was good at it, but I did not enjoy it. And that's the distinction for me. I like that. So now you mentioned business school a bit, and we're talking about how you want to go to Harvard and Stanford MBA. We'll see. <laughs> what is the plan? I like yeah, it. I respect, I respect the grind. But um, so my question I always like to ask people is what I call the one, the five, and the 25. Yes. So essentially, where would you like to be? What do you like to be doing a year from now, five years from now, and 25? Yeah. So uh, a year from now, if everything goes according to plan, like I'll be working at Bain like full time as a consultant. Uh, right now, I'm studying for my GMAT and right in April. The plan is to plan is to apply for deferred admission to Harvard and Stanford. I like that. So the plan is yeah. The plan, the goal is a year from now, I would have gotten into Harvard or Stanford, and I would know that I'm good. Five years from now, the plan is so I, so I have to work at Bain for three years. And for them to, what you call it, uh, pay for my MBA. So if everything goes according to plan, I would have worked for Bain in three years, and then I would have done a two-year MBA, and I would just have, for five years from now, I would just be graduating from Harvard or Stanford Business School. Is the plan? And then twenty-five I'm years. Stop it right there. So yeah. five years from now, you've done your three years at Bain, you've done your two years at Harvard. What next? Exactly. Okay. So so this is something I've given a lot of thought to. So. The first part is that like, if Bain pays for my MBA and I do two years, I have to come back for another two years. That's how they lock you down and pay for it. So let's just say seven yeah, years yeah, yeah. from now, what is, the, what, what is the plan? So I've kind of given myself three decision notes. And the first one is if I come back and after working in consulting for five years, and I realized, wow, I really love this. I wouldn't be a career consultant. Then I would stay on track to become a partner. Or the second option is 
I realized that, okay, consulting's good, I wanna move on to the next thing. And this is something like I'm hoping that would make these connections or Harvard or Stanford would be to either start my own business because I don't plan on working for someone else for the rest of my life. Eventually, I want to own my own thing. So either start my own business or join a startup in like an exact position to help them off the ground up. The third option would be to exit into uh, either like a Facebook, a Google, like a fan type company in like corporate development or a private equity firm. So that's one good thing about Bain, at least, and again, another reason why I picked it specifically is they really emphasize what's called build your own Bain, which is if you want to go a Bain for three years and then go into private equity, they will help you make those connections, right? Like when they actually came here for an info session at Ivy, like just like a few months ago, they were actually showing all the like HBA ones here, all the career paths people went to after Bain. No other company I've ever seen does that that they're showing you where you would go, where other people go after them, right? That they already say that they want to help you progress. Like, they showed all the people that stayed as partner. They were like, these people went to all these private equity firms. These people went to all these startups. These people went to all these corporate jobs. And the key part is, but if you think about it from their perspective, right? If they, if they build you up and build your skills and help you get to that next level, when you become a big guy at your company and you need a consultant, who are you gonna hire? Yeah. Big, right? And so that's kind of why they help you and like, it makes sense and that was one of the big things why. So the goal would be to go into one of those three, four things. But for right now, like like after, what do you call it? After writing the GMAT, the key thing again I was saying about Bain was like the employee research group Blacks of Bain. So they have this conference every year. And this is one of the big reasons they convinced me to join. So they do a conference every year where they bring all the black people across the world in for a week and then they pay for it. So this last year was in New Orleans, this year is gonna be in Atlanta, so I'll be going from the third to the fifth. And they're already paying for me to fly and stay in the hotel for now. I haven't even started work yet. And I was looking when third to fifth one. Uh, April third to fifth. So it's crazy because I was looking at the list and there's people coming from Bain, Lagos, Nigeria, where I was born. There's people coming from Bain, Johannesburg, South Africa. There's black people coming from Bain, Los Angeles, Bain, Boston. So that's something that's like, when a company really supports like their employees like that to say, it's important to give people who understand that there's a multidimensionality to your identity and yeah. being black is a big part of that, yeah. right? And again, right, if you contrast that to when I was saying that I was in banking, being a really good old boys club where I felt like I had to check a part of my blackness every day I'm coming to work, now I'm in a company that is helping me celebrate my blackness and I haven't even started there yet. Um, so, question I want to go back to is Dine Easy, if you didn't talk about it now. Mm. So tell us more so about um, why did you decide to start Dine Easy and like sort of like what did you learn from starting a yeah, so a bit of background, like short, Dine Easy was just a social enterprise that I started that cooked and delivered meals to people in the London area while aiming to alleviate poverty, uh, sustainability, and food security in the London area. So when I first had the idea for this, I was in second year, right? It was October in second year, and that's when I thought I was going to do this. And the biggest reason I would say why I started Dine Easy was never to become the next Mark Zuckerberg and drop out of high school. It was simply this. I knew that at the time, I was 19, no dependents, two years of university ahead of me, hadn't started at Ivy yet. This was the best and biggest safety net I would ever have. So I could try this business right now, give it my all. If it blows up in my face and I feel horribly, let's say, worst case, it takes me five years to recover. I'm 25 now. I haven't even lived a third of my lifespan. Right? And I would still be graduating with an Ivy business degree. So I thought about it and I was like, I'm gonna do this and give it my all and see where it goes. And if at the end of it, I'm like, 
okay, this is something that's great. I'm gonna drop out, not drop out, finish my degree and then pursue that full time, right? But it was good to have that option. And honestly, it was the most challenging, tumultuous, but great learning experience in my life. And for a fact, I wouldn't be where I am today without it. And I know for sure I wouldn't have the main job without it because that final partner, the head of the private equity group, who interviewed me, who had that exchange when I was leaving, the very first question he asked me was the interview was that easy. We talked about that for the first 10 minutes, mm -hmm. right? And like, without me doing that, without me succeeding and failing with that easy, I wouldn't be where I am. So, um, why did you decide to like wind down the company? Yeah, like, mm -hmm. what do you, because obviously, you know, this is the thing where like people learn more from their failures and their successes. Mm -hmm. So, first question is, why did you decide to wind down the company? Second thing is, what were like, some of the key lessons you learned from like the non-success? No, yeah, yeah. That easy. Okay, yeah, so I, I like the way you put it, non-success, because I mean, it's a success and a failure, right? It's a success in that I learned, but if I'm, if you have to be real with yourself in that, a business is meant to keep on going. If it doesn't, it fails, yeah. right? So the first reason of why I decided to wind it down was, so I got this job at Bain, like I said, in August, right? And I knew I was about to start work. And then I looked back on it and I said, what have I spent the last three years of my life doing? I realized that I've been grinding, not even the last three years, since when I was 16, right? The last five, six years in grade 11 when I set those goals out for myself, I've been, I've been running, right? And it's like when you have a goal that you're running towards, you just keep running, running tirelessly. And I realized I finally got there, right? So this is my last chance to just take a year off for myself and enjoy and do the things I'm interested in. And so I thought about it and also, once I start working Bain, I would have to end the business anyways because my job as a consultant, like I might not even be, a lot of the times I won't be in the country four days out of seven, or I won't be in the city at least four days out of seven, and trying to manage a business in London, Ontario, when I'm working in Toronto, but might be in LA, like it's just impossible. So I, my two options were either keep doing Dionysia until the end of fourth year and close it, right? Or close it now, cut my losses, and take the lessons. And I felt like I've really gotten all the lessons that I needed. And gets forward to your second point in terms of like what were those lessons. Number one is that you don't know jack shit about anything, right? Like, again, like I said this at the very beginning of this, but look, ask yourself, is what I wanted five years ago the same thing I want now? And the answer is no, it's, it's never the same. So when you're goal setting, you need to be malleable in your goals. Right, the, there's, a, there's an analogy, and this is something that in grade 12, I, a mantra that I started living my life by in goal setting is, I have to think of it as, there's a building that I'm walking towards, right? And I don't necessarily know how many doors or how many windows, what color the building looks like, but the key part is I set out one building, a bunch of the rest of them. So now you've set a goal. Now I know that the closer I walk to the building, the closer I get to it, right, the more apparent the features become. Right? And if you set out one building, you can tell if you're getting closer to it or if you're getting farther away. If you're in the quickest path or if you're in a hard path. Right? But the key part is you set one building out. But just know that your building doesn't have to be set in stone. The closer you get to it, the more apparent the features will become. Mm -hmm. So set your goals, but be malleable in them is one big lesson. The second big lesson is that recognize that we are young and we have all the time in the world. I feel like a lot of people, especially if you go to a big school like Queens, U of T, Western, we all feel like everything is wrong in the world and it's up to me to solve it now, right? And that's the same way I used to think, but we realize that we're 20, 21, 22. Like when you graduate, you're 22, you have not lived a quarter of the average Canadian lifespan. 
slow down, right? There's still so much to go through. And that's something I'm realizing now. Third big lesson I took from it is that I was way more naive than I thought, and we all are, right? There was so many, hindsight's 2020, and there's so many things I look about Dionysia, I look, I just laugh at myself. I was just like, you're an idiot. Like, like how did you even like, like what was going through your head when you, you made that decision? Like, you're like, like, you're, like, there were just some like, like some days I was just like, oh, it's gonna work out, right? But like, again though, the only way to figure out if you're naive is by doing it. Because you need to fail, fail fast and fail forward. Because if not, I'm always, I would have just kept thinking, oh, I know this, I know that, I know that. But actually like putting skin in the game and making those decisions, like and having it blow back on me in some ways, but also having seen some decisions work out, help me see my shortcomings and help me identify where my weaknesses are and how I can improve myself. It's all about self constant self-improvement, right? Like a friend of mine recently like said and he was like, if you're the person you already want to be today, then what are you striving for? Right? And that really resonated with me. Um, so now we're coming down to the last part of the interview. The question I like to, so there's another question I like to ask called um, what are you currently obsessed with? Mm -hmm. So this can be anything. It can be any workout at the gym, maybe a new YouTube channel, maybe Instagram account you discover, a new restaurant you'd like to go to, a book, podcast, anything. What are you currently obsessed with? Yeah, definitely like book, like uh, the last, well not the book I'm reading now, but the one before, I, I'm, I read a lot, I'm like a voracious reader, but one of the last books I read is called Factfulness by Hans Rosling, and it was, uh, so if you know Bill, Bill Gates, he has this like, website called Gates Notes, and like, I'm a follower of that, and every year he publishes like his best books for the year, so that was one of the books, and the, books, the book essentially talks about factfulness, 10 reasons why we're wrong about how the world is. Like how, 10 reasons why the world is better than we think it is. So humans tend to have this negativity and nostalgia bias, where it's always like every every older generation always says, in my good old days, right? Yeah. And we always think the world was always better than it is now. But in that book, he faces, so this guy was like, unfortunately he died recently, but he was like a scientist from Sweden who like went to the top of his career like was like was presented at Davos to all who is who on why they're all wrong about the world. Mm -hmm. And so he's given key facts about like how the average man, so if I, let me ask you this. So if I say the average man right now goes to school for 10 years, how long do you think the average woman goes to school for? Six. Nine. Exactly, right? So the, these are the things that like, or it's like, what do you think that in developing countries, what do you think the literacy rate for children is? 20%, 40%, or 80%? 40%. Exactly. Things that we don't think, because we, we don't, and this all, and again, not to pick on you, I was wrong on all of them too. So this is the format he presents the book in. It's a positive this question to you, and then show you why your negativity bias is wrong, and backing it up with like hard facts. Because all my aspects are like more negative than negative. Exactly, right? Like, and it's just like a bias that we have, right? A cognitive bias, but, that book was like, but the book doesn't just talk about the facts, but it, it talks about how can you navigate this post-truth era we live in, okay. right? And how can you contextualize and use facts and knowledge as your weapon, right? Yeah. And it was fantastic. I highly recommend it. Facts with us by Hans Rosling. I'll link it in the description. Cool. And then um, what book are you currently reading now? So currently I am reading uh, The Order of Time by Carlo Rovelli. And it's essentially, it's like an astrophysics book, so like it's like quantum mechanics and like time. Like so essentially it looks at like 
So the, the book I read before this was like, uh, like uh, Stephen Hawking's last book, so Brief Histories to Answer Humankind. And so in his books, he talks about like general relativity and special relativity. But then Rovelli, who was like a Cambridge professor, talks about like time and like how time isn't like an absolute construct, right? Like we already knew that from like from like talking, right? And the fact that like time is relative based on observers, like. If you're here and you have a watch, and it's a guy in a plane that has a watch and we set it down, the time will move differently. Time will move slower for us because we're closer to the Earth's core and gravity will warp us. But then Rovelli takes these notions further to talk about like how, the nature of time itself and why time is actually not absolute. Like when you look at like the origin of the universe, time isn't actually a variable that needs to be. Okay, I can start nerding about all this stuff a lot, but That's it's a great book though. I'm very into like like tech and astrophysics and quantum theory. How did you pick up that book and why did you start reading it? So uh, how I really even got interested in like astrophysics and all that and like quantum theory, it was like in second year, I took a class called The Origin of the Universe, like it was an astronomy class. And so that class really went over like the Big Bang Theory, general and special relativity, and like that's how I first got interested in this stuff. And then from there, I did a lot of, so I read a ton of articles always, so I read stuff online and then I read uh, Stephen Hawking's uh, uh, A Brief History of Time, right? That was a book that really then I was like, this is like really cool stuff. Then a few months ago, like before he died, Hawking's last book that he was working on was uh, like questions, like brief questions to uh, for humankind, it was something along those lines. It was his last book and based on like the last theory of like space time he was working on. So I read that and was super interested in it and then Rovelli was like kind of like derivative of that. But somewhere along the line, I just became super interested in like, like string theory, astrophysics, all that stuff. Yeah, that's super interesting. I never knew that about you. Um, so now, second last question: If someone wanted to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Yeah, honestly, like Facebook. Like, just shoot me a message. I'm a pretty open book. Like, again, like grab coffee, have any questions, like just feel free to reach out and like I'll answer to the best of my abilities. Facebook, and we'll also link his LinkedIn as well. Yes, yes. So now the final question, I'm still working on this question, so bear with me. And so I'll ask you, I'll sort of like ask two questions. So pick which one you want to like answer. Okay. So the first one could be like, you know, almost like a letter to your younger self. So Paul mm -hmm. at 16, Paul at 18, what would you tell your younger self? Or you can answer from the perspective of, for someone watching this right now, what's like one final thing you would like, piece of advice you want to give them? Okay, I think I'll go with the second one, just because like, I'm mostly happy with how things have turned out. <laughs> but uh, in terms of anyone watching this, and I'm going to assume that you're somewhere between grade 12 to second year. Right, I I'm just gonna make that, like that's the like, vantage point I'm gonna give the advice from, because I feel like I'm not in any position to be given anyone my age advice, like I don't, I, what do I know? But, and then from grade 12 to second year, get involved, like get involved, get involved, get involved. It doesn't matter what it is, Find something you're interested or passionate about and make an impact. It's not enough to be a general member. It's not enough to be a researcher and attend meetings. Find somewhere where you can make an impact, where you can get that feeling like I did when I went home and I laid down and I said, wow, I just did something. I just made a difference, right? When that, that feeling, you can't fabricate it, right? But don't think about the, I'm doing this to get the resume. Right, the resume and the, and the professional experience comes after you get that feeling, not before. Don't put the horse before the cart. Do things because you're interested in them, and you make an impact, and you feel good. Mm -hmm. Then that impact is what will help you succeed. 
Don't do things because you want to succeed. Make an impact and you'll succeed. So you know I said you wanted to do three things when you graduate? I think she had a fourth one, motivational speech. <laughs> that was fantastic advice. And also to add to what Paul said too, I think it's not like that advice is not just only applied to people in university or in high school or younger than Paul. At any age you're in, even if you're working a full-time job when you're already very true. Get involved in the community, get involved with like stuff you're interested in, but always be useful to you down the line. And be a lifelong learner. Never stop. You have to constantly stop. Constantly keep iterating. Because I repeat what my friend said to me. Because it really stuck with me. Like we were at a so I we had this scholarship. Like what you call it, that like an entrepreneurship scholarship. And I was fortunate enough to get one. And my friend got one as well. Zach, like you know Zach. And like so we all everyone had to give a three minute speech quickly. And so during his speech, he said this, and it really resonated with me. That if you're already the person that you want to be today, then what are you striving for? You have to be a lifelong learner. You have to constantly improve, constantly iterate, right? Well and make an impact. Well Paul, yeah. thanks for joining us, man. No, thanks for having me. This was great. Yeah. Oh, no, this is great for you guys as well. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll catch you guys on the next episode of Routine TV.